It was several years ago when I was in Edmonton that I was part of a small group that had a lady that was in it who was not a Christian. Her husband was a believer. She wasn't a believer. And we were talking through one of the Gospels, and we were looking at some of the different things about who Jesus was. And then we began talking about the grace of the Gospel, that Jesus while we were still sinners, died for us, loved us, and gave us an opportunity to, for new life. And as we were discussing this, this lady spoke up and said, you know, I think I'm beginning to understand it now. The only problem is, is that I still don't think I can become a Christian. And then she started to say to us, you, you, you don't realize the background of my life. Some of the things that I've done, some of the things that I've said, the kind of person I've been, I am just simply not worthy. I don't deserve that kind of love. Now, I replied as, as gently as I could. I'm not always the most gentle in my reply. So I tried as gently as I could, and I replied, and I said, well, then, if, if that's the case, then you obviously don't understand the message of the gospel. Now, she was taken a little bit by surprise and said, well, what do you mean? And I said, you are correct when you say that you don't deserve this. But that's exactly the point. The point of the whole gospel is that you don't deserve this. But you can receive it, and this is where you are wrong. You can receive it because it has nothing to do with whether you are good enough or not good enough. That's the whole point. It's grace. In fact, to say that you're not good enough for God to save you is ironically actually a form of pride. Is anyone really so special and so unique as to be beyond the power of God's saving. It was a great experience because she actually got the point after we talked that through. And we had the opportunity right there in that small group to pray with her and she prayed to receive Christ. There is a kind of pride that maybe we could refer to as a worm pride. It, it's kind of a, a pride in our unworthiness. A woe is me, I'm so bad, so unable to do anything good, so unworthy of God's love, he certainly would not be able to or even want to save someone as lousy as me. There are some theologies that even perpetuate that kind of thinking. But then... We are faced with the lady that we're going to meet in the gospel today. A lady who approached Jesus much differently. It's in Mark chapter 7. If you want to follow along in your Bible, it's Mark chapter 7. And it's verses 24 through 30. And let me read the story of this woman. Then Jesus left Galilee... And went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know 
which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came, fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from his daughter, her daughter. Since she was a Gentile, born in, born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, it's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. On Thursday and Friday of this week, we read the Gospel of Mark as a congregation together. And one of the, one of the questions when we got together with some of our discussion groups, one of the questions that's asked each week is, what in what you have read over the last week bothered you? It probably doesn't surprise you that this story came up for a number of different people as a story that bothered them, particularly because of the way Jesus speaks to and appears to treat this woman. It's a complex little story, and it's a complex little story, especially because Jesus doesn't come across in the best light. In fact, at first glance or first read-through of the story, Jesus appears to be both rude and even racist. But as we will go into the story a bit more, we will recognize that, yes, there really is the Jew-Gentile issue going on display here, but Jesus is anything but racist. In fact, what the story is going to uncover for us is a challenge to the racism of the Jewish people in his day. You see, outside of God, we are, all of us, every single one of us, lost in our sin, no one is righteous, the scripture says, and there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's no merit, there's no work, there's no ritual. There's nothing that we can do on our own to save ourselves or begin a relationship with God. But that doesn't mean that we are totally passive in regards to a relationship with God. God, yes, is always the initiator. God always starts things off. We don't discover God. It is God who reveals himself to us. Because of our sin, because of our blindness, we create gods in our own image rather than pursue the true God. But God pursues us. Every relationship and work of God begins with God. God allowing himself to be seen by us. God uses such means as the Bible. God uses pastors. God uses friends. God uses speeches and sermons and talks about him. God uses church communities. God uses missionaries. But it's always God who takes the initiative to reach people who do not yet know him. 
It always starts with God. Sometimes it even starts with God through a dream. But God is the one who initiates. And then people respond. It's like the story that Jesus told of the sower in the seeds. The sower goes out and he initiates. He throws the seeds out. He does the work of the farmer. And then we see the kinds of responses. Some will respond with an immediate rejection. Like some of the religious leaders did in Jesus' day. It's a complete wall, complete closed off to anything. That's how some respond when God reveals himself to them. Others respond more favorably, but they don't grow. And so they lose their way, and like the crowd that Jesus fed, the 5,000 who mistakenly get ideas about Jesus, and then when they are not miraculously continued to be led on their ideas of who Jesus is, they begin to abandon him. Others respond favorably, but then the cares of life and the lure of wealth causes them to fall away, kind of like the rich young ruler that Jesus dealt with. But then there's others, like the woman that we just read about, who respond favorably and stick with it even doggedly, like this woman with the possessed daughter. The woman with the demon-possessed girl had heard about Jesus Again, the news about Jesus came to her. She heard about this man named Jesus, and the news of Jesus had obviously begun to spread even beyond the Jewish people and into non-Jewish territory. Jesus was in his highest part of popularity in his ministry right now. We read that Jesus even was trying to secretly hide away from the crowd, but people still were able to find him. It's like what many celebrities and movie stars find their life to be like today, trying to hide from the crowds and the paparazzi and people finding them everywhere. Jesus is trying to get away and trying to hide, trying to have some time with his heavenly father, but the people continue to find Jesus. And the message of Jesus has spread. The text here goes out of its way to emphasize that this woman was a Gentile woman from the Syrian-Phoenician region. And so Jesus' message had gone far enough that Gentiles were now coming to find out more about who this man was. And notice in the story the dogged faith of this woman. She had heard about Jesus, and then she came to Jesus when Jesus came to her region. And it says she came and to Jesus immediately right away there was no hesitation and when she came to Jesus she fell at his feet and she begged him now you would think that this kind of eagerness for Jesus would be richly rewarded and here's where the story goes off kilter and really bothers many of us A Gentile woman 
coming to Jesus when she hears Jesus coming to the region, coming to Jesus right away, falling at his feet, and begging Jesus for a situation that she knows very well that Jesus can deal with because he's been casting out demons. She knows that he can do that for his daughter as well. She's in a desperate situation. She knows exactly who to come to. And after she does all of this, at Jesus' feet, possibly clinging onto his feet, begging him, this is the response we get from Jesus. Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Now what kind of response from Jesus is that? And one of the things that we have to understand as well is that dogs... In the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, were not like your pet fluffy. Dogs were seen about at the same level as pigs, maybe a little bit higher. Nobody kept a dog as a pet. Dogs were simply scavengers that roamed the streets, were often pests. People wanted to keep away from them because they would have diseases and rabies. Dogs were not something that, if you were called one, was a compliment. So why would Jesus call this woman who's desperately seeking out help a dog? Now you could understand some very natural responses that this woman could have given. She could have walked away, hung her head in shame, and simply thought, you know, he's right. I'm nothing. I am simply a dog. I didn't think I had much chance with Jesus anyway. I'm certainly not worthy. I'm not of his people. Guess I'll just go home and we'll deal with my daughter as best I can. And many people respond this way. Many people are afraid to speak up, afraid to challenge some of the ideas of society, the things that maybe parents or school teachers or friends called you or the way they treated you. Many people suppress their doubts, they suppress their questions. And they think that by doing this, by, by just accepting their lot in life, that somehow they are simply submitting to God's will. They're being pious in their passiveness. This obviously is simply God's will for me. And is it not my job to simply just accept what he has lauded for me in life? That would have been a very natural response. Uh, the other natural response, the complete flip opposite of it, but it would have been natural as well, is that she could have become indignant with Jesus. Uh, she could have maybe yelled back into his face and said, who do you think you are calling me a dog, you male chauvinist pig? Now probably in the first century in Jewish culture, a woman probably wouldn't have thought about doing that like maybe women would today. They didn't have some of the same freedoms and rights and even ideas about themselves as a woman. But that could have been a natural response. Who do you think you are? 
And many do respond this way also. Who does Jesus think he is? I have my rights. I have my freedom. I am somebody. Nobody is going to show me differently. I don't even care if it's Jesus himself. I'll get what I want, how I want. If Jesus will help me get that, that's great. If not, I will move on. Good riddance. There's a lot of other options out there. But the woman didn't respond in either of these ways. She didn't passively accept Jesus' assessment of her. But she also didn't radically fight against the kinds of things that Jesus said. And you see, the truth is, is that both of these responses are self Centered responses. Both responses focus the eyes on the self. Either they focus the eyes on the self as unworthy, terrible, bad, horrible, or they focus the eyes on the self as worthy and as someone that should be given what is their due, and they should be seen as someone with some power, some superiority. In both cases, the focus is on self. But what we see with this woman is that she did not look at herself. Instead, she looked at Jesus with both faith and humility. She ended up accepting and not accepting what Jesus said about her. Interestingly, we see in verse 28 her response back to Jesus. Isn't it, is it right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs? She replied, that's true, Lord. On one hand, there's an acceptance. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plate. At one level, an acceptance. At another level, a challenge. You're correct, Jesus. I'm probably no better than a dog. That's how a lot of Jewish people see the Gentiles. But even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall off the children's plates. And so not only did she come right to Jesus right away, not only did she fall at his feet, not only did she beg him, but she persisted with Jesus. I may be a Gentile, I may be a sinner, but surely you are great enough to make food so that I can at least eat the scraps. It's these words of the woman in light of the larger context that give us a clue to what Jesus is doing. Now this week, as we spent Thursday and Friday, over two days reading the Gospel of Mark, reading it big like that starts to help us catch themes, catch larger ideas that are working its way through. And so it's very interesting to make note of where this story is placed in Mark's Gospel. The writers of the Gospels 
usually organize the stories and the events with a theological mindset as directing their selection. And so it's interesting that Mark places this story of the woman begging for crumbs in between the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6 and feeding the 4,000 in chapter 8. And we have this story of the woman in chapter 7. Now, in both instances, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and when Jesus fed the 4,000, Jesus miraculously makes enough food for everyone to eat. And in both instances, the people that he fed were the Jewish people. Just as in the instant with this woman, Jesus says to her, first I should feed my own children, my own family, the Jews. But this Gentile woman knew something bigger than even many of the Jewish people, even Jesus' disciples at this point. She knew somehow where the trajectory of Jesus' ministry was going. And that is when Jesus fed the 5,000 Jews there were 12 baskets left over. When Jesus fed the 4,000 Jews, there were seven baskets left over. Who are these leftovers for? And why does Mark even mention them? He mentions them for the stories in between. And if you read on in Mark, he mentions them for the stories that happen after as well. There's another scene with Jesus on a boat where he refers to the leftovers also. Lord, even the dogs under the table get the leftovers. You've come to feed your people. Is there leftovers for the Gentiles? Good answer, Jesus says. In fact, she understood God's mission with Israel better than the people of Israel did. See, right at the very beginning, God called Abraham so that his people would be a blessing to the nations. That is the key that had to be constantly reminded to the people of Israel through her prophets. It wasn't that God called Israel to bless her. It was that God called Israel to bless the nations through her. Jesus is now reenacting Israel's story because what Israel did is Israel failed to fulfill her mission. She continually tried to, tried to hoard God for herself. And so Jesus comes and Jesus now fulfills Israel's mission, which Israel failed to fulfill. He reenacts Israel's story. Jesus now is the one who is greater than Abraham. 
That is, Jesus is bringing the message of God's love to Israel so that through Israel, all people from all nations will be able to join God's one true family. Jesus starts with Israel. But by the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he calls his people from Israel, his disciples, to go out into all the world. And then in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon those early disciples. They now begin to speak into different languages, and they begin to spread into all the world. The book of Acts ends in Rome, the place which represents the world. It starts with Jesus. He then, through his ministry, it expands like throwing a rock into the pool and the ripples go out that by the time we get to the end of Acts, the message has gone to the whole world, to Rome, to the nations. That was Israel's mission, which Jesus came to live out, which Jesus came to fulfill. It's not about feeding 5,000 or feeding 4,000, as amazing as that is, but it's about God having enough leftovers for the world. The message is in the leftovers. We shouldn't miss the symbolic numbering of the leftovers. Twelve and seven... If you know anything about numbers in the Bible, those are very significant numbers. The faith of this Gentile woman is jumping ahead. She's anticipating even better than Jesus' disciples where Jesus' ministry is going. It's not merely a fulfillment and blessing for Israel, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. It's a ministry to feed the world through Israel. The leftovers. Jesus had become Israel so that through him, God would bless the nations, just as he promised to do with Abraham's child. And notice how Paul picks up on that. Notice how Paul picks up on the singularity of the word child. Paul says, God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children. As if it meant many descendants. The promise didn't come to Abraham's children. The promise came to Abraham's child. And what does that mean? Rather it says to his child. And that of course means Christ. The promise was fulfilled not in Abraham's descendants, children. But in Abraham's descendant child, Jesus. The fulfillment of Israel's mission. It's as if this woman is challenging Jesus with God's original promise to Abraham. Jesus, if you're great enough to feed your own people, surely you can make enough food for us Gentiles to eat as well. We might ask ourselves, are we allowed to talk to God this way? I mean, 
she just goes right back at Jesus, tit for tat. Well, it does put this Gentile into very good Jewish company. We see this as the same kind of dogged faith as the heroes of the Bible like Abraham and David and Job and Jacob and Moses and on and on. Eugene Peterson says our engagement with God, at least in its initial stages, is often more like a quarrel than a greeting, more like a wrestling match than a warm embrace. Israel is Jacob. Jacob has his name changed to Israel when? After he wrestled with God. And ironically, it says, and prevailed, whatever that means. And now here, too, is this woman representing the Gentiles who also wrestles with Jesus. And guess what? She prevails. It appears that Jews and Gentiles do come to God the same way. That is through a wrestling match. God likes people who wrestle with him. Who grab him, who won't let him go, like Jacob and like this woman, and says, I will not let you go till you bless me. Because of that, we see the response that Jesus gives to this woman. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. It's important to realize where this woman's dogged faith is directed. See, unlike the beginning of the sermon and the woman in my Bible study, her faith was not directed at her unworthiness. Her faith was also not directed towards her worthiness. That is why when Jesus gave the response that Jesus gave, she didn't get flustered and either walk away with her head in shame or start to self-righteously puff herself up and try to get her way. Her focus was not herself. It wasn't focused on her strengths or her weaknesses. It wasn't even focused on her faith. See, our faith becomes stuck when it's focused on our faith. It's one of the Achilles heels of the evangelical movement. I had mentioned this a little bit earlier in my, evangelical class, or in my uh, Sunday school class. In the evangelical movement, so much of the focus has become upon us. We need to make a decision. We need to examine ourselves. We need to see whether or not we are worthy enough. We need to repent. We need to do this. We need, and it all ends up becoming almost a therapeutic navel-gazing. Some of the youth can probably relate to this. I know when I was a young person too, going off to camps and the emotionalism of the camps and all of that, I accepted Jesus into my heart probably 183 times. 
Because you always go, I don't know, was I really sincere last time? Did I really feel it enough? I better go forward and make a second or a third or an 18th recommitment of my life to Christ. And it's all because it's coming out of a self-focus. Where am I at? Am I worthy? Am I unworthy? Is my faith strong enough? Is it sincere enough? Am I good enough? Am I consistent enough? The woman much more like the Protestant reformers, corrected us and reminded us that the focus of faith is not on self. The focus of faith is not on faith. It's on Christ. Despite how I'm feeling, despite my doubts, despite my up and downs, despite the strength of my faith, it's Christ who I put my commitment into. This woman pleaded her case before Jesus. The object of her faith was Jesus, not her faith. So it was to Jesus she ran. It was to Jesus she bowed. It was to Jesus she begged. And here's the key. It was to Jesus she argued. See, when the focus is on ourself, then we end up having this self-argument with who we are and, and whether or not we're good enough. When the focus is on Christ, when the focus is on God, it's He we have the dialogue with. As we see in the Psalms, as we see with the Old Testament prophets, as we see even with Jesus as He interacted with His Father, the challenges now go out to God. Didn't you promise this? Didn't you say this? Remember even Moses? When God got upset and he was going to wipe out the, the people uh, from uh, Egypt during their exile, Moses' direction was not, oh, you know, woe is us, or oh God, we are a wonderful people, you need to forgive us. Moses' direction was on God. God, if you wipe these people out, people are going to say you're a weak God and can't control your own people. Moses challenged God based on God's character. It's what this woman did with Jesus. She challenged Jesus. She held Jesus to his own standards of compassion. She challenged Jesus according to his character, not her character. And mercy was extended to her because of her dogged faith in Jesus. I will not let you go, Jesus, until you bless me. She didn't allow herself, she didn't even allow her faith in her faith to get in the way. Her faith was in Jesus. Sure, call me a dog, call me a Gentile, call me a sinner. Yeah, maybe all those things are true about me. But if you're a, as great of a God as you say you are, surely you can save a dog, a Gentile, a sinner like me. If you're one who can feed 5,000 with leftovers, surely you can share the leftovers with someone like me. If you can look after your own people, certainly you can look after the rest of us. 
It was this kind of dogged passion and fervor for Jesus that God looked at and said, Go. Your faith has made you well. It was a lesson for the Jews. And it was a lesson for all of us church people today to realize that whenever God blesses his people, there are leftovers. And the leftovers are not meant to be hoarded by his people. The leftovers are meant to be shared with the nations. The leftovers are not there for us to get fat or to fight over. The leftovers are there to spread to all those who, like this woman, want to find their Savior. To go into the highways and the byways, inviting everyone who wishes to come and join the feast. And guess what? When you join the feast, you not only become part of the feast, you become part of the family. And that's the profound part about it. That when, like this woman, you come <coughs> and join the feast, you come and take part of even the leftovers, you no longer are identified as a dog, as a sinner. You no longer are identified as a Jew or a Gentile. You're identified now as children of the King. Look what Paul says, continuing on in that passage in Galatians. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Who is that Christ Jesus? He was the seed of Abraham. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs in God's promise to uh, you are his heirs in, in God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Do we understand that? Do we hear that as God's people? We become part of the family that God's promises to Abraham belong to us. They were fulfilled in the seed of Abraham in Jesus Christ. And now all those who come to Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile or any other background, they all now become one of the true one family of God. And all those original promises that were given to Abraham, we now become heirs of them. We now have Abraham's promises. All of them belong to us. That is why it is so profoundly important when we come to communion, as we're going to do so now, that we remember two things which come right out of this story. And that is God has only one family, not two. He has one family, and that is the people of Christ. They are the children of Abraham. They are the people 
that God has called into one family. And whatever background you come from, whatever situation is your background, as you come to the table, you are saying that you are part of that one family. Secondly, you come to the table as one new family because of the fulfillment of what Christ has done for you. You come to this table as one new family, not by examining yourself, but by looking at Jesus. You do not need to do a psychological self-assessment on whether or not you are worthy to partake of this meal. What you have to say is, is my faith in Christ? If it is, he's made you worthy to partake of this meal. The only thing that makes us unworthy to partake of it, when Paul talks about examine yourself to see, he's referring to the church, not individuals. And what Paul is referring to there is the fact that the church is not acting like a family. And so what he's saying is, do not take of this meal if you're not behaving as a family. Because then you are eating of it in an unworthy manner. Recognize that you are a new family where there's no longer rich and poor, there's no longer Jew and Gentile, there's no longer slave and free, there's no longer any divisions, God has one family. If we can understand that, and then we get our eyes off of ourself and get our eyes onto Christ, which is who this represents, we then partake and eat. Because Christ, like this woman, has become worthy for us. And Christ, as he did for this woman, is the author and the finisher of our salvation. He does it all. We do nothing except receive. As we bow our heads to prepare for communion, after I pray, we're going to play a little video to prepare ourselves for communion, and we'll take the offering during that time as well. Lord Jesus, it's about you, it's not about us. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, may our eyes be on the bread and on the cup. Not on our own hearts, not on our minds, not on our faith, not on our weakness, not on our sin, not on our strength, not on anything that we are. May our eyes be on Jesus. And as we come to the table, Lord, we fall at our feet before you as this woman did. We beg you. We persist with you. We put everything we have on you. Our faith is in you and in you alone, not ourselves. And as we do so, Lord, we recognize that you glue us all together as one new family.
from Father Abraham on. So, Lord, we come to you this morning because of you. We're now right with God. And because of you, we're now right with each other. Amen.